0: A reading from Ephesians chapter 5 and a few verses uh, from chapter 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look carefully then how you talk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey our earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord because he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Amen. Everyone, let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just said that um, we believe that Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. Um, And uh, it's a formidable doctrine. But it is a beautiful one. Because it means that evil will be thrown down. that it will not endure forever. And that all that is good and true and beautiful will go forever. And then in the cross of Christ, we have a way of escape, a way in which we can be assured of everlasting life in present communion with you. And based upon those beautiful truths, I ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to rest upon every one of us that is hearing right now, that we may hear your voice and not mine, that we may hear the voice of our shepherd calling us by name into a good and happy gospel. Will you grant us to hear your word well? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everyone, um, would you please uh, turn back to page seven and the Ephesians reading. Uh, friends, we have some formidable work to do today. Um, we are, as you know, uh, walking through the book of, F, uh, of Ephesians, uh, the Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, one of the things that we do here at Emmanuel is that we generally select a book of the Bible and then we read it together. Uh, week by week. So um, week to week, I don't know if this is new to you, but like I don't wake up in the morning on Monday and kind of say, "Hmm, I wonder what we should preach about next week. What we do is we preach the next bit of whatever book that we're going through. And one of the things that that means is that um, every now and then we come upon bits of the Bible that we might not have, or I might not have woken up in the morning and said, hey, I really want to preach that bit. Um, We preach, we get to look at and wrestle with bits of the Bible uh, that are sometimes formidable, difficult, challenging. And that's one of those today. We're going to talk about slavery today. We're not going to talk about uh, parents and kids. Uh, we're going to talk about the last paragraph. And I got to be honest, um, I sort of wanted to skip this bit uh, because there is just so much tension and frankly, so many ways to get this wrong. Uh, I'm aware that some of my ancestors enslaved people. And perhaps some of your ancestors were enslaved. And we all know that our nation's history of slavery has uh, created patterns of sin that reverberate in horrible ways right down to this day. Earlier in the service, we we said a confession of sin together and And when we say that confession, one of the things that we say is that because of our sin, there is now no health in us. Um, And that's something that's true of all of us individually. And it's true of us corporately. And it's true of every single nation, including our own. And the Bible requires us to look at that reality, that because of sin, there is no health in us. We've got to look at that reality with unyielding honesty. But here's part of the difficulty today. Um, As I said, some of my ancestors, enslaved people, and uh, some of the people in our nation have used this reading and some others like it in order to authorize slavery in this nation and elsewhere. And so as I come to this reading, it, it, it brings up a frightening question for me. I don't know if it's up for you, but it's up for me. And the question that it brings up for me is simply this, were they right? And when we come to this reading, that last paragraph, the, it doesn't explicitly call for the abolition of the structure of slavery. That's kind of what I wanted to say, but that's not exactly what it says. And what do we do with that? Can you feel the question? And then that leads me to another question that's underneath and, and it's this. Could it be that the injustices that have ravaged, ravaged our nation, could they be somehow rooted in the Bible? Uh, Could it be that the Bible or Christianity has somehow smuggled in justifications for oppression? Which is another way of asking the question, can we really trust the Bible? And therefore, can we really trust Jesus? See, these are the questions that make me on the one hand kind of want to skip this reading. But it's precisely why we cannot skip this reading. There's too much writing on it. And I would be a coward to skip it. So Emmanuel, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do some work. And I'm going to try to help us read this text closely within its original context and within the larger context of scripture. And as we do that, this is what I want to show you. The justice of Jesus subverts slavery. And it did so from the very beginning. And as we see that in this reading, we're going to have to learn the importance of living our present lives in light of Jesus's future judgment and justice. And so I'm asking for your courage today and your patience. Come with me into this reading. Point number one, the justice of Jesus subverts the master's privilege. We're going to begin at the end. Look at verse 9, the very last verse in our reading. It's a little bit of a punchline, and it says this The Apostle Paul says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, why are we starting at the end? Well, because verse 9 is breathtaking in its original context. Remember that the apostle Paul is in prison. He's writing this to a group of churches around Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. And these churches are majority Gentile. They are culturally Roman and Greek. Now at this time, the idea of abolishing slavery did not exist. So ancient Israel's uh, law, what we have in the Old Testament, ancient Israel's law uh, regulated slavery in a pretty unprecedented way within the context of that culture. And, and there were individuals who uh, liberated or manumitted their slaves, but there were no societies at this time that had even considered the idea of abolishing slavery or even that it was comprehensively immoral. In fact, in the Roman and uh, Greek cultures, uh, Aristotle stood out um, as a leading figure of thought. And Aristotle argued that slavery was simply part of nature. Uh, and that in his mind, a slave was a tool for the master. So in his thinking, um, the, there was a largely unfettered priority of master over enslaved person. Now, that was the normal standard view at that time. And slavery was everywhere at this time. In fact, in some parts of the Roman Empire, they think that there were more enslaved people than there were free people. And therefore, when Christianity came on the scene, the church was immediately full of enslaved people. And the church also had masters in them. And therefore, the Apostle Paul has to address it. However, what I want you to see is that when Paul addresses it, he does not simply baptize the cultural norm. Rather, he puts the master under the light of Jesus's justice and his final judgment. And the result is that the master's privilege gets subverted. Look at verse nine. There's three aspects of verse nine. There is a positive command. There is a negative command. And there's a warning. And all three subvert the master's privilege. Go through them with me. First of all, the positive command. The positive command is masters do the same to them. Now that seems like a little command, but it's a big one. Consider for a minute the word same. The word same does not fit within a system of slavery. I mean, the whole point of enslavement is to avoid same. Um, An enslaved person is not within the system of slavery, the same as the master. And they definitely do not treat each other in any way that could be described as same. And yet, nevertheless, the apostle Paul writing them says, treat them in the same manner. Now, it's interesting to me that some modern commentators warn me against taking this too far. However, I read a sermon by St. John Chrysostom St. John Chrysostom was the greatest preacher of the fourth century. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. He's a formidable authority. And he preached on this verse. And he said that it means quite simply what it says that the masters here are commanded by the Apostle Paul to serve their bondservants, and that they are to serve them in the fear of the Lord. And you might read this in the light of our gospel reading, where Jesus says, if anyone wants to be great, they must become the slave of all. Now, what does the Apostle Paul here do? He says, whatever it is that the bond servants are supposed to do, there's going to have to be an answerable responsibility on the part of the master. And that, of course, changes. Can you see how that changes The relationship fundamentally, because it means that both parties are now in the teaching of the Apostle Paul accountable and responsible to each other, and that's a revolution. Now, that's the positive command, but then, secondly, there's a negative command, and the negative command Paul says in verse 9 stop your threatening. Now, once again, this is revolutionary in its original context, because the standard wisdom within Roman society at that time was that you motivate your bond servants by threatening them. The idea was that fear generated loyalty better than anything else. That was the thinking. And Paul targets that motivation, that common motivation within uh, the wisdom, so-called, of the enslavement system. Paul targets that motivation, and Paul forbids it. St. John Chrysostom, again, says that masters were not to be irritating or oppressive towards their bond servants. Now, can you see for a minute that this is not normal for a system of enslavement? And you can imagine it a little bit like this. I want you to imagine that um, the system of enslavement is like a big building, a big stone, seemingly impenetrable building. But imagine that you could go into that building and you could go down to the foundations and imagine that you're in the basement and you see that the foundations are built out of a series of pillars. A series of pillars are holding the whole structure up. And on the pillars, there are names. And on one of the pillars in the foundation, it's named slaves serve masters. Masters don't serve slaves. That's what's written on that pillar. And you watch as the Apostle Paul and his teaching comes and he rips that pillar out. And then you look around in the foundations and you find another pillar. And another pillar is entitled, Masters Threaten Their Slaves With Oppression. And once again, you watch as the Apostle Paul, by his teaching, rips that pillar out. And you realize that the building above you is becoming more unstable. And then Paul comes with his warning. Look back at verse 9. Knowing that he who is both their master and your master is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, this one's a bit of a closer because Paul says something like this. He says, masters, masters, you're going to have to keep in mind that if you belong to Jesus Christ, or even if you don't, one day you will stand before him because he will be the judge of the living and the dead. And when you stand before him, in the end, as the judge of the living and the dead, says Paul, on that day, masters, your privilege will not avail you. The privilege that you have enjoyed in this world will not avail you when you stand before Jesus, because no human privilege endures the judgment of Jesus Christ. In other words, argues Paul, if you leverage your present privilege toward oppression, then you will face a justly angry Jesus. Now, to grasp this more fully, um, you need to remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament. So, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus tells us what it looks like when an enslaver does the opposite of verse 9. So, Pharaoh, you might remember, uh, refused to uh, serve Israel in any kind of just manner. Rather, he threatened and oppressed them, and he thought that he could do so with impunity. He thought he would get away with it. But he was wrong. And the reason he was wrong is that the Lord, The judge of the living and the dead. And Pharaoh's privilege did not avail him before the Lord of Israel. He oppressed Israel, the people of the Lord, and therefore the Lord judged him and judged him severely. And Pharaoh is the biblical model that tells us what to expect when we face Jesus in the end. And so now, here in verse 9, Paul says, Masters, don't you think that you're the final authority? Don't you forget that you have a master too, and he is the same master who judged Pharaoh, so you better conduct yourselves in light of that greater master, or you can be sure that you will end up like Pharaoh. Now, can you see how the justice and the final judgment of Jesus subverts the master's privilege? The justice of Jesus demands, on the one hand, mutuality and respect. Treat them in the same manner. Uh, Secondly, the justice of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus forbids threats and oppression. Stop your threatening. And thirdly, the justice of Jesus promises equal accountability in the end. He shows no partiality. And all of that destabilizes the structure of slavery. But at this point, it makes me want to stop for a minute and ask the question, yeah, okay, well, but did anybody, did, did anybody actually put this into practice in the day? Like, did anybody actually, did any um, Roman uh, slaveholders actually change because of Paul's teaching? Well, we get a little bit of a hint from, or more than that, from Paul's letter to Philemon, So Philemon, you can read about this uh, in the New Testament. Philemon was a man who lived not too far from Ephesus and he kept enslaved people. And then he became a follower of Jesus through the ministry of Paul. Sometime later, one of his enslaved people, a man called Onesimus escaped Philemon. And oddly enough, he ran to Paul. Was it because he had heard Paul's message? Was it because he wondered if the gospel might give him hope? I don't know. But he ran to meet the Apostle Paul. And there, with Paul, Onesimus became a Christian, and he ministered with the Apostle Paul. And then, strangely enough, I don't entirely know why, the Apostle Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon. Only this time, Uh, Onesimus came back to Philemon as a messenger of the word of God. What I mean by that, he, was, he literally carried part of the New Testament with him. He carried Paul's letter to Philemon. You can read about it later. And in this letter, in the New Testament, Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a brother, which is to say, Paul takes the teaching of verse 9 in our reading and he applies it to slaveholding Philemon. What happened? Well, the letter to Philemon doesn't tell us. But we have post biblical sources. The first one is just a few years after the writing of the New Testament that tells us and that uh, suggests to us that Onesimus gained his freedom and that he went on to become a bishop of a church, either a church in Macedonia or very likely the second bishop of the church of Ephesus. The second bishop of the church that received this letter to the ephesians i can't compl- i can't entirely tell you that that's what happened but that is what multiple sources of the early church tell us the justice of jesus subverts the master's privilege and did so from the beginning but now secondly The justice of Jesus dignifies the bondservant. Take a look at verse five now. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, on the face of that, that looks pretty straightforward. It looks like an unqualified command to total obedience. However, look at how a bondservant is supposed to obey Verse 6, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. This is important. The Apostle Paul is telling the bondservant to obey in a way that pleases Jesus, not in a way that pleases their master that's not the priority which is another way of saying the apostle paul is telling the bondservant to in a sense decenter the earthly master and recenter jesus christ as their ultimate master paul says don't just obey to get your master's approval he's not saying don't obey he's saying obey but don't obey with the aim or the motive of simply getting your master's approval rather serve in a way that pleases and honors jesus now again Think about the pillars and the foundation of slavery. One of the pillars and the foundations of slavery is this. The value of service is measured by the pleasure of the master. But the apostle Paul says, no. Your goal, if you belong to Jesus Christ, is to please the Lord Jesus. You belong to Jesus before anything else, says the apostle Paul. So live to please him. So let me add another piece of evidence. Do you see verse 6? do you see the phrase, the will of God? Do the will of God. Do you remember, we've said this before, what the will of God means in Ephesians? The will of God is defined in chapter one. And there, the will of God is to display that Jesus Christ is the main point of history, that Jesus Christ as the main point is also the highest authority over everything. So here, Paul's saying to the bondservant, participate in the unveiling of God's will, the unveiling of Jesus as the highest authority in the universe. In other words, the apostle Paul is saying to the bondservant, you have a role to play in God's overarching plan of history and redemption. Do all that you do in a way that shows that Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority over all. And do you know what that means? It means at least two things. It means that it fills the bondservant's work with a meaning and dignity. More about that in a minute. But secondly, it also implies that the bondservant's obedience to the master is limited. It's limited by the deeper allegiance to Jesus. Think about it. If the bondservant belongs to Jesus Christ, then if the earthly master demands something that contradicts Jesus's teaching, then there is a logic for the bondservant to resist. Now, sometimes the bondservant is not able to resist, but this teaching gives a logic for resistance. Now, once again, we can clarify this by looking to the Old Testament. Think about Daniel. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel, in the Old Testament, was captured and enslaved by the king of Babylon. And all through the story, Daniel serves the king of Babylon faithfully, so to speak. He keeps verse 5. But when the king requires him to disobey the Lord, then things change. Then Daniel conscientiously objects. That's how he ends up in the lion's den. You know, I imagine that this explains part of the reason why, in our history, American enslavers often tried to keep African Americans from learning to read. Because among other things, they did not want them to read the Bible. Because the trouble is, when enslaved people read the Bible, they often read it better than their enslavers. And that's what happened in the history of the United States. Because as enslaved people learned to read and they read Genesis... They found that in the beginning, God created the world good. And they found that in the beginning, God created humanity in his own image and likeness and thereby endowed humanity and all of humanity with a dignity that is a reflection of God himself. And as they continued to read in Genesis chapter one and two, they found that God created and blessed certain institutions that we find in society to this day. Institutions like marriage between a man and woman and the children that the Lord gives to them, and that that is part of God's blessing. And they found out that God had designed humanity, all of humanity, to represent God and serve him in the world. But you know what they didn't find in Genesis chapters one and two? They didn't find a hint of slavery. They didn't find a hint of God blessing slavery because God never designed nor blessed slavery. That came after sin ruined everything. See, they saw that. They could read the Bible well. And then they came to Exodus and they found out that when God wanted to clarify what he means by redemption and salvation, they found that the whole idea of salvation and redemption was introduced by God when he liberated slaves and judged enslavers, Pharaoh. You see, they read the Bible better than my ancestors did. And then, of course, they got to Jesus. And there in the face of Christ, they found the one who, though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. The word is slave in Philippians chapter 2. And being made human, he became obedient Not to any human authority, but he became obedient to his father, obedient to the point of death upon a cross. And you know who died upon crosses in Rome? Slaves did. And so when they saw that, they could see that the son of God had become one of them but they also saw that the Son of God had become one of them to lift them up. They saw that the Father had highly exalted Jesus and given Jesus the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and no one else is. And when they met Jesus Christ, they knew that they had found a Lord whose service was perfect freedom. And they also knew that Jesus Christ shared his own dignity with them. And Jesus's dignity filled them with a holy boldness because now they knew that they were servants of the king of the universe and they knew that their Lord treasured them. And then they read verse eight. Paul says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond or free. And now Emmanuel consider the magnitude of that promise to someone who was a bondservant. You see, in verse 9, Paul tells masters, Jesus is going to hold you accountable in the judgment to his definition of justice. But in verse 8, Jesus tells bondservants, Jesus is going to reward you. And can you see what that does? Jesus dignifies the bondservants with reward. Again, one of the pillars of slavery is that there is no just reimbursement. There is no just reward. And that's part of what makes the work so dehumanizing. But Jesus isn't like that. Verse 8 tells us that Jesus considers their work for him of equal value with anyone else's. Jesus Christ, the one who will end up being the main point of all history and the highest authority over all, has already determined that he will give equal honor to bondservant and free, and there is no partiality, which means the pay is the same. That Jesus will not withhold wages, that Jesus will reward, which is all a way of saying this, Jesus is not an enslaver. can you see that the justice of Jesus subverts slavery and does so from the very beginning because he promises a reward for righteousness and he promises a judgment of evil. And we've got to look at the judgment and justice of Christ in the end and then apply it to this day. And when Christians are at our best, we have always seen that that is true. 1774 there was a group of enslaved Christians, and they were reading their Bibles well. And they wrote to the Massachusetts colonial government. And they pointed out very insightfully that slavery is an obstacle to serving Jesus, and that that is true both for the enslaved and the enslaver. They wrote this. By our deplorable situation, we are rendered incapable of showing our obedience to Almighty God. How can a slave perform the duties of a husband to a wife or a parent to a child? See, they knew that the Lord had instituted those uh, um, those structures from the very beginning. And they could see that enslavement uh, uh, blocked their capacity to obey the Lord in those areas. Continuing. There are a great number of us sincere members of the church of Christ. How can the master and the slave be said to fulfill the command to live in love or let brotherly love continue and abound or bear ye one another's burdens? How can the master be said to bear my burden when he bears me down with the heavy chains of slavery and oppression against my will? And how can we fulfill our part of duty to him whilst in this condition Is we cannot serve our God as we ought to do in this situation. (laughs) They were good theologians. They were following in the tradition of Moses and Daniel. And they could see that slavery itself must bend the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they could see that slavery inhibited their obedience to Christ and that slavery inhibited the enslaver's obedience as well. And they could see that the cross of Christ had changed the situation, that the cross of Christ had made them brothers and sisters with everyone else who belongs to Jesus. They were reading their Bibles well. And I'm so thankful they did. So how do we apply all this today? Oh, so many ways. But let me point out two, and they might be two that surprise you. First, Emmanuel. We need to treasure the word of the Lord. And second, Emmanuel, we need to treasure the Lord of his word. Hmm. What do I mean? Well, first... We need to treasure the word of the Lord. I said at the beginning that there is a fear among some of us, that the Bible is somehow complicit with the evils of our nation. And it is certainly true to our shame that many people who claim Christ have misused the Bible and promoted oppression. Oh God, forgive our sins and the sins of our fathers. For we have sinned against you. But the problem was us and my ancestors, and it was not the Bible. In fact, the Bible rightly read, sparked the abolitionist movement. Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley writes this. He says, no society that preceded the 18th century abolitionists contended that slavery was itself fundamentally immoral. Do you see what he says there? Before the 18th century, there was no society that questioned fundamentally the the structure of slavery. It had ebbed and flowed, but there was no one yet that had uh, pronounced it fundamentally immoral. Then Esau Macaulay continues and says this, the widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation. See, the movement to abolish slavery began with Christians reading the Bible well. There were plenty of Christians that were reading the Bible badly, but it began with those who read the Bible well, and therefore we must treasure the word of God. It is the book of freedom, and that is true for all of us, and it has been true from the beginning. It is the book of freedom. Treasure it, do you? Then secondly, treasure the Lord of his word. In this reading, Paul wants both masters, so-called, and bondservants, so-called, to stand before Jesus Christ, who is the crucified Lord of all. And there before Jesus Christ, those who appear to have a higher status are humbled. And those who appear to have a lower status are dignified. And Jesus wants to do one of those two things in all of us today. Some of us, appear to have a high status in the eyes of the world. And if you're one of those people, you probably don't think of yourself as that, but try to think of yourself honestly. Many of us have been privileged in many, many ways, and that is very often not a bad thing, but there are dangers with it. And if you are someone whom the world sees as someone who is privileged or of high status in one way or the other, then it is incumbent upon us, if we belong to Jesus, to put yourself before Jesus, to put ourselves before Jesus, and to look forward to that final judgment and the justice of Jesus, and then also to look at the cross of Christ and live in, the, in between those two realities until you and I are humbled down, until we are servants of all. The only path to greatness is through becoming a servant of all. Let Jesus bring you down to the happy glory of humility. And then for some of us, we have experienced the opposite. For some of us, we are in the eyes of the world of lower status. And maybe you've been passed over and maybe you've been told you don't matter in a thousand ways and never explicitly. And maybe you've been marginalized and oppressed and maybe there is pain in your heart because of it. And if that's you, then you need to know that Jesus Christ has seen you all along and he values you a great deal and he loves you and he loves to dignify you. And he gave up all of his dignity when he hung upon. On the cross so that he could share his dignity as the child of God with you forever. So let Jesus impart to you a dignity which you can never achieve by yourself and that this world could never get to you but will remain with you for all eternity. Jesus wants to lift you up. And as Jesus humbles the powerful and dignifies the lowly, then we will taste that freedom which the world cannot give. Generosity drives everything we do at Emanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.